Hey, thanks for coming this morning and uh, joining us for our worship time. Uh, if I've never met you, you're a visitor. I'm Jeff. I'm one of the elders here at Substance. I was thinking this week that, um, you know, it's been a couple of months ago, Ronnie said he was going to be on vacation. And uh, he said, would you take one of the Sundays to preach? And I said, sure, why don't I take two? Well, first mistake, right? Like, why would I do that? Second mistake was this. I said, I'll just do two weeks on eternity. You know, that would be easy to do. It's like, what was I thinking? And so right now you're wondering whether you should even listen to me probably. But um, last week, we uh, started this just two weeks brief, very brief uh, look at eternity. And um, last week I did the bad news, that was hell. Um, we learned last week as a setup for this week that God created us in his image and we were created for eternity. Matter of fact, we looked at Ecclesiastes chapter three and it says, God has put eternity in man's heart. So there's a piece of us a very core of us, if you will, that has been created for eternity that will live on forever and ever. This week, we're going to look at eternity with God in the present heaven and the future heaven. I'll explain that as we go through, but let me give you a couple of big chunks that'll help maybe get your mind engaged with me this morning. First is this, there's a, a current heaven that Jesus called paradise. You remember on the cross, two thieves beside Jesus, right? And uh, one of the thieves said to Jesus, remember me today. And Jesus said, truly today you'll be with me in paradise. A promise that upon his death right then, he would be with Jesus in paradise. And that's the place that believers go right now upon our death. We go directly to paradise with God in his presence. Well, there's second, a future heaven. And that place is the place that we eternally spend with God. And we'll look at scripture this morning that talks about the new heaven. Third, uh, in the future heaven, we live in resurrected physical bodies and enjoy unending joy and relationship with God and other people. Fourth, the future heaven is a redeemed and restored heaven and earth where we will live with God and there will never be sin or the effects of sin. Everything will be perfect as once created by God when he called it very good. With all that in mind, there's all kinds of questions and things that I'm sure you're wrestling with and would like answers to. And uh, again, foolish Jeff thought I could answer a lot of those in one sermon. Certainly can't, but I think I'll give you some big chunks that you'll be able to grab hold of. Most of us have a pretty, uh, a pretty shallow or small understanding of what heaven is like, probably because we haven't spent much time reading or studying, right? It's interesting, even as I've been with substance since the very beginning, 
We talk a lot about the gospel. We talk a lot about how to get to heaven. We don't talk a lot about what it's like when you get to heaven. Isn't that interesting? Think about it like this. <clears throat> if, you're, if it's possible for you, kind of get a blank mind around this subject of Disney World for a minute. If you know absolutely nothing about Disney World and somebody gives you a postcard with a picture of the castle and says, this is a neat place, we should probably do the 22-hour drive to get there. You'd probably be saying, eh, I don't know, you know, got kids, it's a long drive, doesn't sound like a lot of fun, looks like a nice place, but a postcard, I don't know. Now, somebody would give you a video, a five-minute video walking you through the park where you see all the characters, you see all the attractions, you see all the food, you see the laughter, you see the smiles, you see the happiness. You might start to think 22 hours is not that bad in spite of the body odor in the car, the junk food the bad coffee you have to drink to stay up all night and drive there. I'm guessing that for most of us, we have more of a postcard view of heaven. Is that fair? That we just kind of have a little postcard view. Don't really think much about what heaven is really like. Last week, we were in Luke chapter 16, the rich man and the poor man who died. The rich man had everything in this life except a relationship with God. He dies and he's immediately taken to Hades. The poor man who experienced suffering but did know God is taken to the current heaven. It was a destination that was irreversible for both for the unbeliever, it's separation from God. For the believer, it's eternity with God. We learned last week that upon death, you're either eternally separated from God or eternally united with God. And there's no reverse possible. There's a chasm, as scripture talked about. One can't travel from one side to the other upon death. You reap what you've sown in loving and following Jesus in this life. This week, we're gonna look at heaven and what heaven is like. Let me start with some overview of some things. This is like a really fast overview. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 22, or 24, he gives this account of what it will be like when he returns one day. He said he's going to come back. It will be noticeable by everyone. And he's going to return to this earth. Nobody knows when. But he will usher in the final era where he will pronounce the final judgment of all things. At Jesus' return, there's a resurrection of people. First Thessalonians talks about it. We'll look at another verse here in just a moment. It says, those who are dead, those who are in the grave, will be resurrected. 
and brought together, body and soul together with Jesus. And it says in the air, bodies in the grave reunited. Listen to what Jesus said about this event in John chapter five, verses 25 through 29. Jesus' own words, he says this, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. And he says this, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. And they will come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of the dead. Good in this context when Jesus speaks about it, meaning those who have trusted in Christ and his goodness and his salvation, resurrection of life, those who have not trusted, meaning they've rejected Christ to eternal punishment. And so after those days, the resurrection, there'll be a final period, many call the millennium, or scripture calls it the millennium. And the, in the millennium, that's a, a literal thousand year reign. And then Christ again brings an end to all things. After the final days and events, there's a final judgment. Revelation chapter 20, if you have your Bible with you, turn there. If you have a device, that works as well. But I want you to notice the end and what it's like. Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found in them. Then I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. You see, at the end, all people stand before God. And you're judged solely on one thing, really. It speaks of books, but eventually it's this. Is your name written in the book of life? And so as we look into the permanent heaven this morning, there's some things that you need to understand that are confusing for most people. As a matter of fact, for a couple of weeks, I've been asking people uh, as we were in our CG or I was just having coffee with people, it's like, what are some things you'd really like to have answered about heaven? 
And a lot of them were very similar in the same thing. But as we look into heaven this morning, there's some things that I want you to grasp first. Heaven is not some formless existence in a formless eternity. God redeems everything he created. And we have a physical existence and a physical place for eternity. We'll look in a moment in chapter 21 of Revelation, a new heaven, a new earth, a new Jerusalem. And we've already looked at resurrected bodies. In his book called Heaven, Randy Elkhorn says this, a lot of our wrong beliefs stem from Christoplatonism. Now that's his word, and let me give you the meaning for it. It's a wrong belief that the physical world is bad and only the spiritual world is good, which leads us to not understand eternity properly. Again, think with me for a moment. Jesus is resurrected from the grave and for a period of time, people physically see him. You remember, right? He appears to his disciples. Thomas doesn't believe, and he says, look, look at the scars. Put your hand in my side. There's one time Jesus is on the shore, and, and his disciples are back to fishing, and he cooks them breakfast and says, come ashore, and he eats with them. He has breakfast, fish with them. He has a physical body. His victory over the grave was also a victory over the corruption of our physical body that came from sin. I'm afraid that a lot of us maybe have bought into this form of Christoplatonism to some degree. We kind of think that we're just simply going to be spirits floating around in eternity floating around singing something with nothing to do, just floating around, floating, floating. I'm not sure how I will float around, but uh, <laughs> that eternity with God will be experiencing God redeeming us and his creation. God restoring everything he created back to the state it was before sin corrupted the world in Genesis 3. Listen to me very carefully this morning. The gospel not only means salvation, but redemption and restoration for everything God created that he called very good. Did you catch that? The gospel not only means salvation, but redemption and restoration of everything God created that was very good. Think about that for a minute. It makes logical sense. Genesis 3, sin enters the world. We learned last week that he tempts Adam and Eve and he deceives them into thinking you will not surely die. Remember we talked about that if you were here and how that was a deception, it was not true. But when they were removed from the garden, God did not destroy the garden of Eden, did he? 
He just kept them from coming back in. He didn't destroy the Garden of Eden, but he kept them out and were kept out at the moment. But if God would have destroyed the Garden of Eden, it would be as if he is saying, Satan, you won this one. You got me, man, you were able to make them sin. You won on this one. I better come up with a plan B. Satan never won a thing. God never loses. He didn't say we'll go with the plan B before the beginning of time. God had predetermined, as Ephesians says, that he will put together a plan of salvation conquering the works of sin. Amen? The victory of Jesus on the cross is a victory over anything and everything that sin has corrupted. So part of our struggle is that we live in a world where we don't see and understand anything but the effects of sin. It's hard. I mean, nature itself, thunderstorms, tornadoes, hurricanes, relationships, brokenness, sadness, anxiety in our own life, poverty. All around us, we see the effects of sin. It's hard to imagine living without any effects of sin. So let's look at what heaven is like this morning. If you're not there, turn with me to Revelation chapter seven. We're going to read verses 9 through 17. Now, this is John that was taken <clears throat> while he was on the Isle of Patmos. God gives him a vision of what the end times will look like and a vision of heaven. Revelation 7, 9 through 17 is an account of what the current heaven is like. We'll look at uh, another portion of scripture and what the eternal heaven looks like in a moment. 7 verse 9. After this, I looked and beheld a great multitude that no one could number from every nation and tribe and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever, amen. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? And I said to him, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Verse 15, therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. 
And he who sits on the throne will shelter them from his presence, shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither shall they thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Now commentators differ a bit on exactly who these people are, this picture. There are those who um, believe these are those who are saved out of the tribulation that are Jewish. There are those who believe this is the church for all the ages who have been saved. We're not going to spend time talking about that. I think it could be both. There's an easy way out, right? But regardless, it's a view of those who are saved standing and being a part of heaven. Look at their physical existence, if you will. Again, resurrected bodies. They're multitudes of people. They're standing before the throne and before Jesus. They're clothed. They have clothing. They have physical bodies. There is speaking taking place. There's singing taking place. There's interacting taking place. They're waving palm branches with their hands. They're crying out with loud voices. These are not spirit beings. These are people. Can you see it? Remember last week I said one of the dangers I think we all face is reading anything about heaven or hell or making it just figurative instead of noticing some of the details and seeing their very important details. These are all things people with physical bodies do. It doesn't say these are spirits floating around, does it? Notice there's a conscious awareness and interaction taking place. They're proclaiming with others their knowledge of Jesus. And they're proclaiming and rejoicing in their salvation and in the gospel. There's a great thankfulness. There's a gratitude about them for the work of Christ and being in the very presence of God. It's a little more than a postcard view, amen? There's only joy, there's no sadness, and it's exciting if you read this passage. It's peaceful, it's purposeful, it's unending fullness of joy in the presence of Jesus with others. And then verses 15 through 17 in that same passage we read, They're under the constant care by God. There's a peace and a comfort being in God's presence they experience. And again, for us, this is hard to really even imagine. Think with me for a moment. Can you imagine living with no cares, no concerns, no worry? Can you imagine living where there's no conflict, where there's no anxiety, you have no pressures, no loneliness, no wantings. I can't imagine that. 
that is so foreign to everything we experience now. It says every provision is met in the current heaven. They're not hungry, they're not thirsting, they're not wanting. It does talk about drinking, physical sustenance is happening. There's awareness of what's happening around them in this heaven. They're singing, they're worshiping, they recognize all peoples and they recognize God and they recognize Jesus. It goes on to say that there's interactions with others in these verses. There's crying together, there's singing together, there's no loneliness, there's no competition. A unified rejoicing. Then it says Jesus himself is their shepherd. It brought back to mind for me, you remember when Jesus said, I am the good shepherd who leads you beside still waters. There's a marking of time. It says by night and day in this passage. There's a continuity with our existence now and in heaven. There's some marking of time, night and day. There's structure in place. It says we are participating and active in what's going on around us, serving God in some fashion. But notice it says you're before him face to face and face to face with Jesus. Jesus again said this is paradise. This is paradise. As I studied this week, the word that is connected to paradise is the same word used for the Garden of Eden. So when Jesus is saying today you'll be with me in paradise, imagine the imagery for the thief back with God as it was in the garden, this place of paradise. Maybe we're intimidated by thinking about this, being in the presence of Jesus, being in the presence of others, thinking about nothing but being in God's presence all along. Maybe that's intimidated to you because you don't know Jesus very well. Let's move on this morning to the eternal heaven. That which we have to look forward to, that which we sang about in a couple of our songs this morning. Jump with me to chapter 21. We read the end of chapter 20, and I wanna look at a couple of sets of verses here. Let me read with you verses one through five. And so after everyone whose names were not written in the book of life are cast into the lake of fire, that's hell, for eternal punishment with Satan and his demons. It says in verse 21, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. 
And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. The new heaven, the new earth, and a new city, the holy city, Jerusalem. Redemption of everything God created and a resurrection of everything God created, if you will. Everything back to the original design that God called very good. Again, Satan had won nothing. Don't miss that. There was no victory by him, but only God who would redeem everything and the effects of sin now gone. No stain, no presence of sin. And notice what it said. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say man's dwelling place is with God. It says God's dwelling place is with man. It, it was as it was in the garden. It's not that we don't dwell with God, but God now, again, his dwelling place, his tabernacling with us, his life with us, forever and ever and ever. Never again, a broken relationship between us and God. No death, no sadness, no fear, no pain, no disappointment, no destruction. God dwelling with us. Look at verses nine through 12 as we continue on. Then came one of the seven angels who had seven bowls full of seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and the gates, 12 angels, and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. Notice some of the language used here. There's a great high mountain. There's a physical attribute here. There's terrain, it's a mountain, it doesn't say it's the only mountain, but it says this is a great mountain. So there's a perspective in height and the surroundings. This says there's a city, in the city of God, there's a radiance, a, a brilliance, a beauty. There's a structure, a city, because it talks about gates and walls where people come in and out of. Notice the building details, the construction, a place for people, a gathering place familiar for all of us, a city you go to. And then in verses 16 and 17, if this weren't enough information, it gives the exact measurements of the new Jerusalem. 
12,000 stadia in length, width, and height. Listen to me. In our measuring today, that's 1,400 miles long, 1,400 miles wide, 1,400 miles high. This city can hold a lot of people, right? Verses 22 through 26, as we move to end this morning, chapter, um, yeah, verses 22 through 26, and I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord, the God Almighty, and the Lamb. The city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the lamp is the Lamb. By its light the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day or night. There will be no night there. Notice, in the presence of God, everything is provided and taken care of. The city gates never shut. They're able to shut, or it wouldn't say they're unable to shut. But it says there's no need to, there's no threats. And notice verse 25 that says, nations and kings come in and out. Sounds like physical people, right? People are traveling in and out. So it's only natural to say there's some kind of transportation or people moving. There's interaction among people. There's knowledge of other people and places, kingdoms, kings. You see, you, you get the view. We have maybe too much of a postcard view. Amen. And then verse 22, or chapter 22 the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruits, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healings of the nations. There's a river flowing through the city there's trees on each side of the river. There's fruit being yielded. So there's food, there's water, there's agriculture, there's beauty. You get the picture. This is not imagery. These are things that God provided in the, in the Garden of Eden that are provided to us. Think about it. There's landscape, there's mountains, waters, streams, trees, buildings, there's architecture, there's a city, there's streets, there's food, there's people. And people come in and out of this, they travel. We know each other and we will need new people. What will life be like in the heaven to come? Well, if there's kingdoms and kings and people coming in and out, I'm guessing we get to learn a lot about other people. Yes, God is in our midst. We won't know everything because we're not God. There's still things to learn, to grow, and to know. Again, when you look at Jesus' life, he ate, he talked, he interacted with people after his resurrection. 
More than 500 at one time saw him physically. And what will we do? That's one of the questions. Will we know each other as one? Yes, we will know each other. We were created, have a relationship with God, and then God created others, Eve, so there would be physical interaction, a person to talk with. But what will we do? Well, like in the garden, we will tend God's creation. The gifts God gives us now will probably be carried on, I would guess, if he gave us gifts now to use for him. I mean, teachers will teach, builders will probably build, singers will sing more beautifully, artists will paint more brilliantly. Everything we do will be done to bring more glory to God because of the gifts he has given us. I think we'll be able to travel and create and think and discuss and learn and grow. Now, doesn't this sound like a pretty interesting place? Doesn't it sound boring to me? I want us to close with just a couple of things. Romans 8 says, creation waits eagerly now for the return of Christ, for these things to come to the end of the age. And it says, we await eagerly. When we look at these passages, I want us to be reminded of three quick things that I want you to walk away with besides what we've learned. First, God is a relational God. God is a relational God. Revelation 21, verse 3, we looked at it, says, Behold, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Behold, it means to stand in awe, be amazed, the fact that God would dwell with us. Can you think of the significance of that? In spite of how I live my life now, if you're a believer in Christ, God says no. I will dwell with you. God is a relational God who does not want our religious attempts to please him. Catch that. We, we all, to some degree, continue to work and work and work to make God happier with us. And he says, I can't be happier with you than the fact that I sent my son Christ to live and to die for you. He wants us to make him our God and live with him forever. For some people, you can't even imagine this because your faith is only about showing up to church maybe twice a month. For some here, you know a lot about Jesus, but you don't know Jesus. There's a difference. And when we look at our scriptures this morning, the key fact that you have to know is, is your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life? That's not my words, that's his words. Matthew 7, Jesus told one of the most sobering stories as he spoke with religious leaders and those gathered around him. He said, in the last days, there's going to be a lot of people that come before me and say, 
look at all the things I did for you. I, I prophesied. I, I did all these great things in your name. And he makes this very sobering statement. He said, I'm going to tell them, depart from me. I never knew you. <laughs> they, they looked like they did lots of good things for Jesus. But he says, I, I, I never knew you. Depart from me. The question is, do you know Jesus this morning? Second thing, God is a redeeming God. He takes all that is corrupted by sin and renews it. Everything. The corruption that resulted from sin is now cleansed. The creation that was broken by sin is now restored. God doesn't scrap anything and start over. He redeems it. And today God still redeems people, amen? He takes broken people and redeems their life and forgives them. Sin's power in our life neutralized. No effect of sin is ever too great for God to take care of. Heaven is a grand example of redemption. Third, God is a restoring God. As we read these passages, not only a relational God and a redeeming God, but he is a restoring God. The eternal heaven shows us that he puts everything back into place the way he originally created it. Our relationship restored. God dwelling with us. Perfect unity. Restoration of all creation. Nothing broken. No sickness. No death. No brokenness. No fear. No insecurities. No pride to battle with. No conflicts with others. No fading joy, no war, no needs. Everything back by the conquering King Jesus. One verse that you might want to write down and keep with you as you think about this postcard view we have. And it's Psalm 16, verse 11. The psalmist writes this. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Heaven will not be boring. Heaven is not a place to dread if you know Jesus. We need to learn to yearn for heaven and not live in fear. So if you don't know Christ this morning, if your name's not written in the Lamb's Book of Life, chances are you heard this this morning and he might be calling to you. How do you get your name in the Lamb's Book of Life? Well, it comes by confession confessing that 
your sins have separated you from God. And it comes by repenting. And that means, as Scott described this morning, turning and going the other direction and now living for Jesus. And it's a promise of restoration when we do that. Heaven's going to be great. It's going to be glorious beyond your imagination and mine. Let's pray. Lord, thank you this morning for your love and for your word. I pray this morning that as we have listened to the things that you have spoken of, these are your words, your truths, that you have done so in such a way that you make it impossible for anyone to have an excuse. Lord, thank you that uh, what we experience now is really, really so minimal compared to eternity. For those who are wrestling with these things this morning, whether they're names in the Lamb's book of life, Lord, might they listen to you calling them. For those of us who are followers, might we more fully rejoice this morning. And so, thank you, oh God. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, the best is yet to come. Amen.